So in um, this church of Thyatira, or of Pergamum, sorry, Thyatira is next week, um, we see that they're beginning to, to compromise what's really in the word of God. They're compromising the truth that they've been saved with. They've been, they've, they're compromising those things. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you guys paid attention to what you're singing. I hope this doesn't cause feedback. I'll hurry up and get back on stage. You were singing just a little bit ago about Calvary. I was too, not like I wasn't singing, um, but thankfully you didn't hear me singing. Verse 2 of that Calvary. By God's word, at last, my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. To my guilty soul imploring, turn to Calvary. That the word of God is what helps us to see what is sin and what is not sin. Like we don't just make this up. We don't just get to walk around with a, have a whiteboard and every couple months we change what sin is. We use the word of God. You just sang it as a time of praise saying, thank God that I have the word to help me see what sin is. And so we're going to see this church in Pergamum that's kind of walking away from that. They're not really walking away. There's people in their midst that they're compromising the truth. They're compromising the word of God. They're compromising because there's this pressure around and they're feeling swayed to come into what's happening all around. And specifically, it's festivals and sexual immorality is what this church is dealing with. Um, And we'll get into that. So, first verse. Well, let's talk about the church first. Um, Pergamum, this is the map we've been looking at. And then, so it's up here. So it's north of, we're keeping going around the clock. It's at the northern corner, and we're going to start rounding back inland. So this, this place is a little farther inland. It's not a coastal city. It's not a port city. It's not a harbor city. So it has a, it's more of an elevated place. When you see a couple of the pictures, it's almost like a mountaintop bowl kind of a place. And so they had great views. There's a temple to Zeus that we'll look at in a second um, that was around here. And so this, this city was more of a fortress, more of a, a place of protection than even a harbor coastal spot. Um, what's interesting is they had a, a massive temple to Zeus, but they also had a huge library, over 200,000 volumes. of. Uh, it was beginning to rival the library at Alexandria, which we all know one of the seven wonders of the world. You know, the library at Alexandria, the knowledge of the ancient world existed in this Egyptian city, and Pergamon was beginning to rival that. It became a place of debate, and a, a, a fight popped up. Ptolemy, the leader of the city of, of Alexandria, didn't want um, Pergamum to have more of a library. Like, think about this. We're fighting over knowledge. Like, that would be kind of cool, wouldn't it? That what we see in the news now, it's not fighting over oil and land and all these things. Instead, like, no, we have more libraries than you, and we're going to go to war over libraries. Well, I don't want to go to war over anything. But um, So what happened was most books were on... Um, papyrus or papyrus. I don't know how you say it, but I'm going to say either one. They, it was a type of reed turned into paper. You wrote it. So Ptolemy stopped the flow of papyrus to Alexandria so they couldn't have books. That's how this got. It was like a blockade on knowledge based upon paper. So Pergamum created parchment, which is animal skins, tanned, very thinly used, and then you would write on that. So Pergamum, parchment actually is a root derivative of the word Pergamum, or the city of Pergamum, means from Pergamum. So you see parchment paper actually means from Pergamum, kind of in a weird Greek, just trust me. And so we get parchment paper from this need to Ptolemy doesn't want Pergamum to have 
this rivalry of knowledge and libraries, we get the creation of parchment from animal skin so we can keep, I just, I found that interesting. You might, has nothing to do with what we're talking about with the Bible. I just thought it was cool. That this city was so steeped in knowledge and knowledge of the world and knowledge, that's the city we're talking about. It's, it's a very influential city. And this Christian church is planted there in the midst of all of this that's happening. Okay? Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, that gives us a hint that as all of the things described of Christ when John recognizes him, like next week we see the feet of bronze. And so you start seeing in this city, the thing that Jesus had against them was the word. That's the sword. That's the two-edged sword. Is the, it's the word of God. We see that throughout. That that's, what's going, that's what we're talking about here. So there's false teaching happening in this church. And so what Jesus has against them or what he wants them to see is that these are the words of the one who is going to cut you down. That has the ability with the word of God to cut down your false beliefs. Now, this is also poignant for this city because Pergamon was the only Roman city that was given the power of capital punishment outside of Rome itself. And so it's, it's kind of a dual meaning here that you've been given because of your commitment to Rome and because you're a Roman city among Roman cities, you're allowed to have capital punishment in your town, but I'm the one who gives eternal punishment, so you need to listen to what I have to say. Okay? So what's going on in this city? What's going on here? Well, they have a lot of worship happening to things other than Jesus. They're surrounded by it as a city. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he says this twice, two times. Where Satan dwells is where you live. This is a direct reference to all the Greek gods that are worshipped in this town. This town was a hotbed of religious activity towards Greek and Roman gods. They started combining them, as you guys remember from your mythology classes, where you had like the Greek gods, and all of a sudden they just became Roman gods, and they smashed them all around, and the plans are named from the Roman, like, right? We have all that. It's either Ares, God of War Greek, or Mars, God of War Roman. It's the same thing. They just started melding them all together. So this city has a long history of Greek and then sliding into Roman culture of worshiping these gods in these various ways. And so what Jesus is saying through Revelation is that you're worshiping Satan. This is where, um, and like I wouldn't, this is not evangelism 101. This is not apologetics 101. Don't do this to someone. But this is where we get the biblical concept and ideal that any false god out there is actually a demon being worshipped by people. So you put out a false religion, you put out, and, but don't. As you're trying to share the love of Christ with people, do not walk up to a Buddhist and go, you know, Buddhist was a demon, right? Or Buddha was a demon, right? Don't do that. Don't do that. Very well biblically true, but do not do that. That's not the fastest way to show them the love of Christ. So this is where you get when people are very hard and strong on that, that any false god is really a demon or really a, a false teacher. This is where this concept comes from. And so Jesus is saying, you, you live where the throne of Satan exists. 
You're in the midst of this worship of all of these gods and all of these things. You're in the middle of all of this stuff. And you've held strong to my faith. You've you've saved my name. I know where you dwell, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas. The story is that Antipas was a, they think it was the pastor. We don't know anything about him. That just like last week, it's a pastor who was martyred for his faith. The story goes that he was martyred by being um, burned alive in a brass bowl. That they had this brass bowl, they would sit inside a fire, and so they would put someone in it, lock them in it, and they would, especially if you called all of this stuff um, idol worship, they would take Christians and throw them inside a false idol, lock them up, stick them in a fire, and they would be burnt alive inside this brass bowl. That's the story of how he died. He refused to worship at, and bulls are synonymous with Zeus, so he's, he's refusing to worship Zeus, and they throw him in an iron, a brass bowl, and he's burnt alive inside of it. So the object of his death was the thing he refused to submit to. And so Jesus says, I, I know, you stand strong against this worship. You stand strong against what's happening here. He sees that in them. Now, the danger is that this temple was, and this is the, the ruins of it, the temple to Zeus and Pergamum. And then this is just a recreation. So it's a giant temple to Zeus. As you walked into the city, you had this giant temple of Zeus. So what happened in this city is that you would, you would worship at least once a year to the, the god of the city. Each city had its own god. Zeus was the one of this one. But then you had festivals that came along too. Every spring, there were three festivals in Greek culture. You had the, the, the festival of flowers. And so you had three days of, it was essentially to Dionysus, the god of wine, and you would just get rip and drunk. For three days, debauchery, do whatever you want. You just unloaded, had a good time, and it, which also led to, with drunkenness comes typically um, in these three-day festival parties would be lots of sexual immorality would slide right with it. And ever, the whole town would be involved in it. And then, I'm going to get to my notes because I'll forget the name. And then a few weeks later, um, in March was the Dionysia, which was a processional of plays and revelry and a whole nother spring kind of party system would happen around Dionysus again. And then in April, you had the festival to Aphrodite. And it was called the Aphrodisia, which you've all heard of Aphrodisiacs. It was the Aphrodisia, which was on this occasion, um, it was kind of a one-day, everything-goes day of sexual freedom. Just do whatever you want with whomever you want. Just go for it. And that's what's happening in this town of Pergamum, that these festivals keep coming. They keep happening. It's, it's still, it's a constant in this city. And so you have Christians in the middle of it surrounded by all of this. And these Christians are beginning to compromise their faith and they're beginning to go along with some of these things. They're beginning to kind of walk in some of these parties and there's people in the church that are like, eh, what's the big deal? It's just a couple days and what's the, Right? I mean, Halloween's here, and I remember growing up as a kid, uh, my dad and my mom would make our Halloween costumes. My aunt would sew them. I've been an Ewok. I've been, uh, uh, my brother and I were, I don't know if you remember Shirt Tales, the kids' cartoon from years ago. None of you remember that. Well, anyway, you had raccoons and beavers, and my aunt would, we would go, we'd get the pattern for the costume, we would go to Joanne's fabric, we'd buy the fabric, my aunt would sew the costume, and then we'd wear these costumes. And I got a little older, and it became a, 
Um, I decided to be a Ghostbuster one year because Ghostbusters were cool in the 80s. So my dad takes me out to the garage and takes an old backpack and takes a, a piece of metal and pokes holes in it. And we stick lights in it and he puts a battery in it and we rig it up to where I could flip a switch and the lights would blink and I had a little thing I could push and it sounded like a ray gun. And like, all, like we, we did all this, it was Ghostbusters and G.I. Joe and right, you had all these things that you did. And if you notice in the last 15, 20 years, there's a whole new version of those kind of popping up. It's not just demons and weird, creepy zombie things. There's like this whole culture of, it's really like a party of debauchery on a Friday night and it's scantily clad costumes and just drunkenness and just massive, right? And I've always, like my kids, we, we do Halloween. We're not anti-Halloween. They dress up, they go trick-or-treating. But in my house as a kid, when I hit teenage years, it was an excuse to go do things that were illegal. Lots of vandalism and eggs and, you know, the baloney trick on the hood of someone's car, like bad, destructive things. When I lived in the mid-Ohio Valley, you don't know the baloney trick? If you throw a piece of lunch meat on the hood of a car when it's cold out, you peel it up, that stain never comes off. You have to get it buffed out, waxed. It's not something to just wash away. It's not, okay. Um, my dad's trick for us was to put a ping pong ball into the gas tank of someone's car. Old school pickup, when you, it wasn't like a fuel injector, so that when the, the, the ping pong ball would suck up to the pickup tube and the car would die, and then the ping pong ball would float back up to the top of the, and then it would start and run again. You have to take the gas tank out to. Destru- you didn't know your pastor was a heathen, did you? <laughs> oh, I was. By the grace of God, I'm here. It became destructive things. Just random, but that you wouldn't do that all year long. Halloween became the destructive time. Growing when being a pastor in West Virginia, we were an hour and a half from Athens, Ohio, which is a famous place of Halloween destruction, where they burn houses down and set fire and they do horrible things. Like the police from all over Ohio flood in for extra duty because this town is known for destruction around Halloween. There's a college campus there and they burn everything they can find. It's Halloween. We're just gonna, we're just gonna go for it. We're gonna have, but think about that in the other parts, like other parties, New Year's Eve. Um, think about the college campus we have over here. Random times of homecoming or a Friday night. Just think of the stuff that, it's stuff that you wouldn't typically do, but it's a moment of debauchery. It's a moment of, it's, it's a place, it's a time to push away all of the inhibitions that's what happened every year in this town in Pergamum. And it starts filtering into the church. And one of the things that was really dangerous about the city was they were so Roman, it became almost like a patriotic worship of the Roman system, Roman gods, and that started filtering into the church. Where the church itself starts to worship the town. It would be like us in the United States. Where we are so patriotic that we take our patriotism above the gospel. That's a dangerous place where we get weepy over America, the beautiful, more than amazing grace that you just sang. It's a dangerous place to be as Christians living in the United States. I love this country. I have a degree in American history. I'm kind of fond of how this country is founded. I kind of think we're pretty awesome. But if I take that patriotism that I have, that I've been born with, proud of, and I elevate that above Jesus then I'm Pergamum. 
I'm taking what's happening in the culture around me and saying that this is good, it's great, it's better than what the Bible says, it's better than what the word of God says, and that is a dangerous place to be as a church. And that's the pressure that this church is feeling. They have all this stuff coming at them. They're forced to worship, they love their city, their city is the, it's rivaling Alexandria, it's a place on a hill, it's a city on a, we, we just sang at Calvary. It would be like you and me, feeling more faith and trust and more passion for Capitol Hill than Calvary's Hill. That cannot be who we are as a church and as a people, as Christians. Now, I'm not telling you don't get involved and don't be part of this country. and don't, I'm not saying that. I love Freedom Has a Birthday. I will stand every time the flag goes by. I sing the national anthem. I put my hand on my heart. I have respect for the men in my family that have served this country in the military, and I'll never stop that. But... If you put a gun to my head and say, well, I profess a faith in Jesus or America more, one more than the other, it's always Jesus. Always. Or I'm wrong. Pergamum's dealing with that kind of pressure. And there's people in the church that are caving to it. And it's a sinister way for Satan to get in the midst of this church. We saw Ephesus... We see how there's persecution coming. It's an external persecution. This is a very deliberate internal persecution. If Satan can't get at you from the outside, he's going to get you subtly on the inside. And so he gives us a reminder of Balak and Balaam in verses 14 to 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Neocletians. We've already talked about. So what's happening is this isn't, we know from Galatians, we know from when Peter had the vision that there's not unclean animals you can't eat. So this is about the festivals. This isn't, and this is the importance of looking at the Bible as a whole. If you just read this, you're gonna go, I thought, I thought we were free of the food sacrifice thing. And didn't Paul talk about in Galatians that, like, what, what are we doing here? And how, oh, right? Last night, Amber was watching Shark Tank. I come downstairs after going to get an Eli, and there's a guy, a, a first-generation Muslim American, and he's created this new product where he's made pork rinds that are made from onions, and they're essentially vegetarian. But because he's a Muslim, he can't have pork, And so now he's going to have a pork rind made from vegetables, tastes just like pork rinds. So he's, you can dabble with the joys of pork, but you don't feel guilty about it because it's not pork in a Muslim faith. I don't have a dog in that hunt. I think that's great. But I'm like, you don't have to do that. As a Christian, pork was bad for Jews, but as a follower of Christ, we see the food rules end. It doesn't matter that, that it doesn't eat what you want might not be good to eat plates fulls of bacon for your heart, but it's okay to eat it because it tastes yummy. And what's happening is there's this subtle teaching seeping into this church. And it's just like Balaam and Balak. It's just like what we see in Numbers that, you, that Satan can't get at them directly, so he's gonna do it in this subtle way. So verse 14. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So what's he getting at? Was getting at the story that the prophet Balaam 
was encouraged by Balak, a leader, to get the people of Israel to go against the teaching of God. But Balaam, as a prophet, was not going to stand up and say, we're going to quit this, we're going to stop this, we're going to end this practice, this is no longer sin, and you can just go for it. Instead, he gets the Moabite women to come along and marry the Israelite men, and then the Moabite women then are able to influence their homes and say, it's okay, let's have a few sacrifices, it's not a big deal. And they go against God, and they're judged. False prophets are worshipped. So it would be in this church, I would stand up and say, hey, adultery's fine. Open marriages are terrific. Let's all go for it. Now, you would run me out. I would no longer be your pastor. You would get rid of me, right? Yes? Please say yes. Like, I love you. You're my church. You should bet. You better say yes. Okay, good. We're all on the same page. If two of you are bold enough, then you all got on board. It's not okay. Now, if I really believe that that was okay, standing up on a stage and proclaiming it to everyone is going to get me fired fast. So instead, I'm going to start whispering to a few people. It's all right. You know, it's okay. God made us for love. He made us to enjoy each other. You've got needs. It's all, you know, just a couple here, a couple there. And all of a sudden, about half the church is we're all swinging and we got these weird things happening and there's all this stuff. But if I stood up here and said it, you'd get rid of me in a heartbeat. I'd be gone, rightfully so. But instead, I start whispering it. A little bit over here, we have some coffee, maybe a little bit of a small group, maybe a Sunday school class. Maybe we all come along over here, we all think this, and then we are all off the rails. And that's exactly what happens in churches today. One person comes in and says, you know, I don't, I don't know if the inerrancy of scripture is a real thing. I just, I don't. You know, I read this thing over here. I watched this TV show. What do you think? It starts spreading. It starts kind of moving around. It starts kind of happening. It's kind of, and then it keeps going. It keeps going. It keeps going. And then all of a sudden, you're a church that just kind of goes, you know, the word of God is kind of, eh. I'm going to trust my story. I'm going to trust my feelings. I'm going to trust what I think. And I, you know, eh. How quickly do we have influence over a whole crew when it's just some whispers here? And whispers here, and whispers here, and whispers here. And that's exactly what is happening. In this city, a few people in the church, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just, it's just a party. It's just a party. To, I, I know it's to Dionysus, but I don't worship Dionysus. I just want to go have a good time. My friends are going. It's fun. It's part, my grandma worship, even though she wasn't a, a Christian. She went there, and I remember growing up as a kid, and we would go to these parties together. And I'm a believer now, but I, I kind of like the party. It's not a big deal. It's okay. And then how quickly that gets into the church, how quickly it just spreads amongst the whole congregation. And then pretty soon you're a church that just goes, well, what's the big deal with sin? What's the big deal? There are churches around today I mean, I was kind of joking about the adultery thing. And there are churches today that a pastor has been caught in adultery. And he took about a week off, gets in front of the church, and they go, hey, it happened. You don't know the story. You don't know what's going on. There's some problems there. But I talked to the Lord about it. And he's okay. He's forgiven me. I'm going to keep being your pastor. And the church's like, well, you know, he's a man of God. He, 
He talked to Jesus about it and Jesus said it was okay. And that's a church that doesn't understand. Like that's why you have a plurality of elders. That's why you have leaders. That's why you don't just have a one man show. It's why you like, you gotta go, no, this isn't okay. Is there restoration? Is there time? Is there healing? Is there, yeah, but not a week. That is not okay. Not okay. I think about every other sin in the book. Specifically, this book. Are we just going to say drunkenness is okay? Are we just going to say it's okay to be heavy-handed with your children? Are we going to say that it's okay to be heavy-handed with your wife? If Amber came in here with a black eye, well, she would stab me, but but if, (laughs) if she came in here with a black eye, and I... I know what happened because I trust a lot of you men, especially you women would come after me, but you would get the men and they would beat me. And that, that's what I want. That's what should happen. And I looked you in the face and said, you know, the Lord says that I'm to run my house. And she didn't do what I said. So I'm going to run it. Would you go, well, you're such a good man of God who reads the word. Would you do that? No. Our only, our only avenue of the truth is the word of God. You just sang that you knew your sin because of the word of God. How do you know what a sin is? Because he tells us. And when you start twisting the word of God and saying what God calls sin is not sin, you're Pergamum. You're Pergamum. And if I can twist what you know to be true... If a person in the church can twist what you know to be wrong and somehow I can make it look like it's good in the Bible, then that's dangerous territory. Because then you're throwing away the word of God, you're throwing away the gospel. How quickly, like you you can't just, it's like a thread on a a sweater and you start pulling it, it's going to unravel. Do we need to put it in cultural context? Do we need to look at it deeply? Do we need to figure out what's going on? Yes. I just told you why it's a big deal for the stumbling block and why he mentioned this. You have to go back into the Bible to find that. But you can't open up the word and go, well, it says here in Romans, this is a sin. I don't think so. Well, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that I'm not supposed to lust. He says that divorce is bad. I don't think so. It says here that I'm not supposed to retaliate in the Sermon on the Mount. I, don't, eh, no, I, don't, I just don't like what that. I want to rip that page out. That's not okay. And Pergamum had this pressure from the world around it, pressing in, and people in the church began to compromise their faith. They began to compromise, saying, yeah, it's just a party. It's just a, it's no big deal. I can handle three glasses of wine. I won't go to the fourth. You sure? It's it's just a festival. So what if they dress this way? It's not a big deal. It can be, quickly. And so Pergamum has this issue. We're there in the midst of their festivals, Sexual immorality is flowing, and they're compromising the word of God. It's dangerous. It's really dangerous. Therefore, repent. Don't, please. You, we've, don't ever forget this. Every one of these churches is called to repent. So are you, and so am I. When Jesus says these things to us, he's not saying you're condemned, be away from me, you're done. There's always the call to Repent. You're shaken by the truth, a call to repent, to turn from your ways, 
And he says, come on back. You're mine. You're mine. There's never, oh my gosh, you sin. Just like what John talked about the scars. You've got the scar of sin, but his scars that he bore for us are deeper and more eternal than anything that you've done or has been done to you. And when you turn back to your faith, you're exposed and you say, I'm not going this way anymore. He says, come on back. Gives you a big hug. He gives us an example. But first he gives us this warning. I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. It is terrifying the few times that the Bible says God is against us. It doesn't happen very often. There's only a few times where it says that the Lord is against certain people or against certain things. That's a terrifying proposition. Now, what's interesting, if you look at the play on words, every, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So this tells us that this, this isn't the whole church of Pergamum. There are people in the church. He's going to go against them. But he's coming to you, the church, but I'm going to war against them, those in sin. This does not mean the whole church because let's say it's 50-50. Jesus is coming after those who are trying to sway the other 50%. This isn't, there's some people in the church that are teaching false things, so the whole church is a waste. You've got to throw it all out. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm coming against those who would twist my word, who would compromise faith. Does that make sense? Then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is why we also don't think this is an end times thing. I'm coming to you soon. We don't think this is an end times, like because then it's 2,000 years ago and he never came. That's kind of a, right? It's that Jesus is going to cleanse his church. That in this church, those who are going against the truth of the word of God will be purged. They're going to go away. And he's calling on the rest of the church to stand strong. But he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's the opportunity to change. It's the opportunity to see the error of your ways and to repent. And that's the offer that's for all of us. No matter what sin you're in the midst of or what sin you've done, there's always the call when you listen to the word of God, you respond, you repent, and there's forgiveness and welcomeness and grace for you. Always. Always. You're never too far gone. Ever. Ever. We then see, at the very end, a couple images To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is a utterly confusing passage of scripture. We think it makes sense that the hidden manna is a reference to the manna that was put in the Ark of the Covenant. Some Jewish tradition is that when the Messiah returns, or comes, that there will be in the eternity that manna will flow, that you won't have to work, you won't have to worry, you won't have to, um, but we don't, that's all, that's all just scholars trying to put things together. We don't know. What it, we can see that manna was provision, that the hidden manna, that if you come back, well, the one who conquers, I will, I'm gonna take care of you. You're gonna be taken care of. Then we get the white stone, and I will give him a white stone. 
This has multiple references. Um, the voting that was done on some issues of sin um, in a community would be the white stone, the black stone. And if you put, people put their, cast their ballots, cast their stones, and it's a black stone or the white stone determining sin. And so if you were given white stones and you were forgiven of your sin in some Jewish cultures, and if there's a lot of black stones, and they would take that basket of black stones and kill you with them in some, culture, in some Jewish communities. And so like the community would vote. Is this a capital offense? You would dump it out. And then if there's more black stones than white stones, you picked up the stones and you stoned the person. But the white stone was supposed to be a stone of promise, the stone of forgiveness. And then a new name written on the stone that no one knows if the one who receives it. To be, this is being becoming a child of God, becoming a new creation. And so the promise, if we put it all together, and this is all, if you start deep digging into this, there's about, there's about four different versions of what each one of these symbols mean. And so if I put them all together, this means restoration. If you're in the middle of your sin and bad thinking and you're, you're, you're compromising with the culture, if you repent, you'll be taken care of. You're washed white as stone. <laughs> That's not really a thing, but you get a white stone and then you get the new name, the new name of Christ, the new heart, a new creation, a new, you're restored back to everything you made your promises in. These are symbols of Jesus saying, if you turn from your ways, I'll bless you, I'll forgive you, I'll take care of you. But you can't compromise the truth. So even though in this short, like six verses, I think, Jesus mentions the two-edged sword of his mouth You're compromising the faith with the culture. You're putting more worship into your city, into your community than to me. And I have that against you. And it's dangerous for the church and it's dangerous for your faith. And I'm gonna come against you. That's terrifying. But anybody who hears this warning and turns, I've got nothing but love for you. Nothing but passionate, overwhelming grace for those who would turn from the false teaching. Sin is serious, but grace washes all of it away. And Jesus is trying to give us this picture that he will not tolerate sin, but if we call in his name, we're forgiven, we're given the white stone, the manna from heaven, and he will restore us. Have to call upon his name. So what do we leave with today? One thing, truth matters. It mattered. Did I, did I spell it wrong? Dang it. Not only am I a heathen, I can't spell. I, I, I don't know if I, I can't. I'm not doing it. I'm not editing it. I'll edit it later. Um, you can't make that up. It's like the crescendo ending, like the call to action, and I mess it all up. That's perfect. Truth matters. Truth matters. So does spelling. Truth matters. The Bible, I'm not going to tell you the Bible is easy to grasp in all of it. All of its ways, all of its nuance. I'm not telling you that. I'm not telling you that you, one day, you're confused by it, and the next day it all makes sense. I'm not telling you that. But it is a lifelong fight journey of joy to know more and more of God. Each and every day through his word. We have to be serious about sin 
that it matters, that people that would defame Christ, people that would throw the word of God under the bus, that is not okay. But we have to be equally passionate, no more. We gotta be more passionate about grace. That even those who would defame the word of God can be saved. Truth matters. And if there are things in the Bible that are confusing to you, that you feel that don't make sense, you feel that are kind of, I don't really, you've got to dig into those. And your sources of information must be the word of God, trusted biblical sources. It cannot be the History Channel, Wikipedia, and some random person's blog. It can't be. You don't do that with anything else in the world. You're facing a diagnosis and the doctor tells you three things, you don't go to Wikipedia to find answers. You go to medical journals, you go to second sources, you go to other, right? You don't, you don't just, well, you know, I read a blog once where somebody dealt with that and they said if I drank a bunch of apple vinegar, that cancer would just go away. So I'm gonna drink a lot of apple vinegar. I've heard that before, I'm sure you have too. I'm not saying anything wrong with drinking apple vinegar. I think it, it's good, go for it. You know, instead, my dad's a mechanic. He knows how to change hoses. I'm going to tap in and I'm going to put some antifreeze in there because that's going to help me live. No, you don't do that. So why, when it comes to things of faith, would you trust some random internet source or some random book on Amazon and you change everything about how you believe and you start compromising your faith based upon some people? You have the word of God. That's your source. And if you're confused by it, find good sources to help explain the word of God. Not random people that have a Facebook page. That's not okay. And in a town with a college right across a street or two streets away, we value education, we value research, we value those things. So we can't be a church in a college town that just goes, eh. It's on Facebook. Don't be that way. The word of God will never set you wrong. It might confuse you. You might need help to read it and understand it, but it's never gonna turn you the wrong way. Truth matters. Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we've had together in your word and thank you for this example of this church that was faithful to you for the most part. It did have in its midst people who were compromising the truth that were being swayed by the culture around them. And Lord, that has never changed. That has been the way that we have lived as the Christian church from the beginning of the church. That there's always pressures from the outside, pressures from the cultures that we live in, that you call us to be a light to those in the darkness. We're always gonna feel those pressures. Help us, Lord, to stand strong for the truth, to stand strong for what your word says, and that we would preach that word of grace to any who would listen. And Lord, where we have begun to compromise some things, help us to see the error of our ways and to repent. That we would turn away from that kind of thinking and teaching, and we would fall on our knees and worship you more than the culture around us. Help us, Lord. We need your strength. 
We need your wisdom. And we are thankful that we have your word. In Jesus' name, amen.